come to realize that, you know, it is what it is. And this is my home. I can't afford to go anywhere else. Nobody really wants to leave their community, and I don't blame them because it's our culture. And we shouldn't have to move just to have clean air to breathe. That should be a given, a God-given right to drink clean water to breathe clean air. Hi, Dr. Celine Gounder here, the host of the show American Diagnosis, the podcast about health and social justice. During the modern environmental movement of the late 60s and early 70s, landmark legislation was passed in the United States to ensure cleaner, safer air and water across the nation. But in recent years, with bipartisanship hard to come by, it's been difficult for environmental policies to get through Congress. And under the Trump administration, many key provisions have been reversed or removed. That leaves activists having to turn their energy away from Washington and instead focus on grassroots movements to create local change. During this bonus episode of American Diagnosis, to better understand this shift, we will hear from Ralph Nader, a consumer activist and former presidential candidate who 50 years ago was instrumental in passing major environmental policies by lobbying lawmakers on the Hill. To the new strategy of today, where activists are less focused on politicians, like Hilton Kelly, who's fighting to clean up his hometown of Port Arthur, Texas, by empowering the community to ensure and demand cleaner air. To start this episode, let's begin in the early 1970s, when major environmental laws such as the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Environmental Protections Agency, or EPA, were put on the books. Millions of people in the United States breathe the pollutants that give them cancer, that give them emphysema and other forms of lung disease. By what right? During this time period, Nader was a force for consumer protections. Not just on environmental issues, though, but on everything. He was instrumental in getting seatbelts and airbags put into cars, smoking banned from airplanes, to an FDA ban of the carcinogenic red food dye. But in order to explain Ralph Nader's role in all of this, particularly on environmental policies, we'll have to go back to his childhood. Nader grew up in a working-class town in Connecticut called Winstead. His parents, Nathra and Rose, settled there after immigrating from Lebanon as young adults. After working at the local textile mill, his father opened up a restaurant and bakery in town where Ralph and his siblings spent most of their days. We had a real communion with people who were trying to make a living in the country. That's when his passion for consumer protections first took root, but it was his upbringing that really put him on the path of activism, which was modeled by his mother, Rose. Her fight was taming the Mad River, which ran through their town. The Mad River was well-named, and it flooded about three major times in the 20th century. Up to 1955, it was a big flood with Hurricane Diana, and it killed 11 people and destroyed half of Main Street, and it was a mess. And my mother was pretty fed up because there was a 1937 flood It did the same thing. It destroyed our restaurant. And there was always talk about a dry dam, and nothing ever happened. Benader's mother wasn't going to sit around and wait. So when she heard that one of the Connecticut senators, Senator Prescott Bush, father to President George H.W. Bush, was going to be in town campaigning, she made sure to show up. 
She went to the gathering and stood in line, stood in line. She finally got up to him, grabbed his hand, said, Senator Bush, you've got to make the dry dam. You've got to get it done. We can't have another flood. And he smiled the way politicians do and started extricating his hand to shake the next hand. She, she wouldn't let him go. She wouldn't, she wouldn't let him go. And her people were you know, a little bit embarrassed waiting. And he finally said, I'll do it. And he actually did it. And we built the dry dam, and there's never been a flood since. Growing up in a mill town, Nader was used to the polluted waters and dirty air. It was the way things were back then. We never grew up even thinking that we could wade or fish in them. They smelled bad, too. They looked bad. They looked like rainbows. And we went to a school called Central School, and right next to it was a rendering plant of chickens. And the smell was horrible. A lot of it was preventable. They just used our air and water as sewers. I mean, it was just a normal thing to do. But Nader didn't think much about this pollution until after he graduated from Harvard Law School, when he began his crusade for consumer protections. This fight included the automobile industry, healthcare, pension system, insurance, and the environment. When he took on those conglomerates, he did so ferociously and passionately, never sugarcoating the issue. The laws are very weak. The penalties are even weaker. Uh, picture the scene. You can destroy a body of water like Lake Erie, and nothing happens to any of the polluters. You can uh, destroy a beautiful spot on the West Coast called the Santa Barbara offshore area, and there hasn't been uh, any uh, criminal prosecution or fine of the violators. There was recently a million-dollar fine imposed on Chevron for the biggest oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. What is that? That's nothing. That's about an hour's gross revenue of the parent company. Nader's environmental work took off in the late 60s when new organizations such as the Sierra Club, Friends of the Earth, and Greenpeace put a national spotlight on the issues around water contamination and pollution. But the strategy wasn't just to make noise. It was also very politically focused. We didn't just have rallies around the country where the energy went into the ether on a weekend. We focused on the place where the decision could be made. And if you got laser beam advocacy groups to take the rumble from the people and focus it on the House and Senate one by one and feed the material back home so that the rumble became more, the demonstrations and the pickets and so on. And in just a matter of three years, we got which, what we could not get in the succeeding 45 years. This strategy was effective, but it was only made possible because of the political climate at the time under, of all presidents, Richard Nixon. Nixon was the last Republican to be afraid of liberals. He saw mass demonstrations in Philadelphia and New York and Los Angeles, Chicago, where there were Republicans there. And then Earth Day came along. It was 1970, 18 million people participated in thousands of events on April 22, 1970. That totally freaked them out. So you see, the rumble from the people really can affect even the most retrograde politicians. As much aroused by the music as by the damage done to the environment by pollution. This is Philadelphia on Earth Day. Welcome, sulfur dioxide. Hello, carbon monoxide. Nixon was so freaked out that he signed anything. 
He, he signed the Environmental Air Pollution Control Act, the Clean Water Act. He set up EPA, set up Environmental Council in the White House. He set up... Clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty, parks for all to enjoy. These are part of the birthright of every American. To guarantee that birthright, we must act, and act decisively. It is literally now or never. But when it came to enforcement, it was a real battle. A battle that is still playing out today in communities across the country. The lobbies from the corporations flooded Washington. And, you know, they outnumbered environmental lobbyists by 100 to 1. You go to the EPA, they filled the corridors. Uh, They made sure that the budgets were very, very minimal by lobbying Congress. And so there weren't many prosecutors, investigators, scientists developing updated standards, revisions, educating the public, involving the public in the rulemaking process. But since politics have become so polarized, this kind of across-the-aisle work is almost unimaginable today. Since President Trump took office, many of the environmental policies passed by former President Barack Obama have been slashed. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax. Given the state of politics today, Nader's lobbying-focused strategy doesn't seem to be working as effectively. His advice is to go after the big corporations, sue for wrongful injuries and harm, and more importantly, empower residents to self-regulate their own communities to ensure clean water and air for their towns and cities. And that's exactly what activist Hilton Kelly of Port Arthur, Texas is doing. More on that after the break. What I'm going to do now is um, we'll start the Port Arthur Toxic Tour with just a sort of lay of the land and a little history of the downtown area. Hilton Kelly grew up in Port Arthur, Texas, home to Motiva, the largest oil refinery in the country. It's a city surrounded by local refineries and chemical plants, an industry that hurts and helps the community at the same time. We asked Kelly to show us around. And then we'll head into the historic African-American community in Westport, out there, and uh, take a look at the refineries, chemical plants, and how the community is just right up against their fence line. In the early 1900s, Port Arthur was a booming oil town. This new industry created lots of jobs and uplifted the economy. When Kelly grew up in the 1960s, the city was alive. Sailors from all over the world would flood the port. Famous artists from Ray Charles to Aretha Franklin would perform at the local theater. And the downtown was vibrant with thriving stores and shops. 
Now, that local theater no longer exists, and many of those bustling downtown shops on Proctor Street have been torn down. This was really the place to be. And so as we move further down Proctor, and you look right to left, what you see is another vacant lot. Here is the Sabine Hotel to my left, here on the corner of Waco and Proctor. And it's been dormant, dilapidated, falling apart. As wealthier families began to move away from the city, they took businesses with them. Meanwhile, those who couldn't afford to leave, a majority of African Americans were forced to stay. Today, more than a fourth of the population lives below the poverty line, and the city has one of the highest unemployment rates in the state. With few jobs in town, the biggest and highest paying employers are the refineries. If you're not working at a plant, then you're making maybe minimum wage, which in some cases here in Port Arthur is like eight, nine dollars an hour. If you're working at one of the plants uh, starting out, you're gonna be making at least 18 to 19 dollars an hour. So that's a big jump. And this is why so many people have a desire to work at the plant, even though in this day and time, we understand the dangers, we understand what the odors are, we understand that sometimes things happen like explosions, but many folks are willing to take that risk to put food on the tables for their families. But the industries that provide these families with a living wage are also the ones harming them. And this area, sometimes it really, really has a very strong, pungent odor of sulfur. And when you breathe it in, it stings your nose. It constantly makes you uh, wanting to try to feel it clear your throat. And every now and then when there's a fire or a stack has to be lit, that heavy soot and smoke pours right into this community. We have a large number of people in this community with respiratory problems like asthma, bronchitis. One out of every five kids in this community have to use a nebulizer and take breathing treatments before they go to sleep at night or before they go to school. We have a large number of people here with cancer that have died and some still suffering. The gravest health threats are in West Port Arthur, the predominantly African-American and low-income section where Kelly was raised. The West Side's asthma and cancer rates are among the highest in the state. So as we continue down 14th Street, um, I just want to make note that we are traveling parallel to the Motiva Oil Refinery. And at the end of West Port Arthur sits the Valero Oil Refinery, Chevron Chemical, Oxbow Calcining, Pet Coke Facility. Besides many of the houses, the local schools are also right next to the refineries and chemical plants. Now, this is Booger T Elementary School. And if you notice, um, Booger T Elementary sits there. The all the gas industry is only like maybe four city blocks away from that school. And uh, by theory, the Environmental Protection Agency states that no school should be within a two mile radius of an oil or gas industry. But there's nowhere in the city of Port Arthur where a school cannot be within a mile radius. So the only way you would achieve a two-mile radius is by putting this, those schools out in the Sabine Lake or out in the Gulf, <laughs> and that's not going to happen. Growing up, Kelly used to get such bad headaches that he had to take medicine and lie down until it wore off. For many, many years, people like Kelly were being subjected to tons and tons of toxic chemicals 
such as sulfur dioxide, ammonia, carcinogens like benzene and 1,3-butadiene, which can cause irritation in the lungs and eyes, chronic headaches, heart problems, reproductive issues, and even cancer. Kelly had no idea the harm, or more importantly, the laws and regulations against it. According to the EPA, Port Arthur has some of the highest levels of toxic air releases in the country. But Kelly didn't think much about it. One time, Port Arthur West End, as well as downtown Port Arthur, was a booming place to be. And yet everybody just sort of, you know, accepted the fact that the air here, it smelled like rotten eggs most of the time. It was just a way of life. It was just the way it was. And when he graduated high school, he left Port Arthur and joined the Navy. He was stationed in Oakland, California. When he got out of the service, he stayed in California, raised a family, and spent 13 years in the acting industry. From time to time, he would come home to visit. When I came back to Port Arthur, Texas in 2000, I came back here initially just to go to a Mardi Gras visit with friends and relatives. And as I walked around Port Arthur, I just kind of was disgusted with what I saw. But Kelly couldn't get what he saw off his mind. So a few months later, he decided to move back and help change things. I kept thinking about the condition of my hometown and what people were dealing with and the number of people that I grew up with that had died from cancer. Most of the time, whenever anybody passed here in the city of Port Arthur from what they call natural causes, well, it's cancer-related, respiratory-related. Uh, many people here suffered in disproportionate numbers with respiratory issues, cancer issues, and skin disorders as well. And I think it's because, largely in part because of what we're being subjected to when it comes to toxic fumes in the air that we have to breathe in and the ambient air that's around us all the time. But many of the residents in Westport Arthur don't have a choice. But we become kind of complacent and we've come to realize that, you know, it is what it is. And this is my home, I can't afford to go anywhere else, so I'm gonna maintain what I have, I'm gonna do the best with what I have. And if you look at many of these homes, these are really, really nice homes. Nobody really wants to leave their community, and I don't blame them because it's our culture, and we shouldn't have to move just to have clean air to breathe. That should be a given, a God-given right to drink clean water to breathe clean air. Kelly's background was in acting, he knew nothing about environmental regulations or laws such as the Clean Air Act that Ralph Nader helped pass and had zero experience in community organizing. But he was eager to help his community. So he asked around and got in touch with those who were already trying to clean up the pollution in town. He met all kinds of people, including one guy who showed him how to capture and test the air for toxins using just a store-bought bucket. It looks like a middle school science project, but it works. Plus, it's cheap, easy, and approved by the EPA. The device involves a five-gallon bucket with two valves on top, one to suck the air out of the bucket, creating a void where the air inside will flow into the plastic bag attached to the second valve. The air in the bag is then sent to a local lab and tested for toxins. And once it was proved to me that we were being exposed to benzene, 1,3-butadiene, high levels of sulfur, you know, I was just floored because we would get back results showing that we had uh, like maybe 10 parts per, per million of sulfur dioxide or 20 parts per million of benzene, which was really outrageous. And uh, that's what really sort of lit the fire under me to push me 
to advocate for a cleaner, healthier environment and reduction of emissions from these facilities. Now, Kelly had the knowledge and tools to take on these big oil and gas industries. So he took the fight to Washington and even brought his five-gallon bucket with him. I went to Washington, D.C. back in 2002. I spoke before the U.S. Senate. I brought one of the buckets with me, the five-gallon paint buckets that is our graph sample device, and I brought it into the Senate floor. And uh, when I was speaking, I demonstrated to them exactly how we grabbed air samples, and I educated them on the high levels of pollution that many citizens in Port Arthur and the Beaumont area were being exposed to. He also established his own organization called the Community in Power and Development Association and began training local residents to monitor air quality. We partnered with people from all over the country. We would stage many, many protests from Houston to Port Arthur all the way to California. And we started to put pressure on these industries to clean up their act. And he even hired a pro bono lawyer to legally fight them. So they sued most of the refineries and plants in town under the Clean Air Act. And the industry responded. They've lowered emissions and put in more safety measures and are even economically revitalizing the city by buying up old buildings and rehabbing them. Kelly's also won a lot of big fights in town, such as in 2006, when Motiva announced it would expand its Port Arthur facility. Kelly got the company to install high-quality equipment to reduce harmful emissions, health coverage for Westside residents for three years, and a $3.5 million fund to help entrepreneurs launch new businesses in the community. That same year, he also blocked a chemical waste plant from importing 20,000 tons of toxins from Mexico to be incinerated in town. And he's still fighting the fight today. Here we are in the city of Port Arthur. We're taking it. Just a few years ago, they tried to bring in VX nerve gas waste. Then they tried to bring in PCBs from Mexico. Now they're bringing in chemical weapon waste from Syria. How much is too much for one community? But Kelly knows closing these refineries and plants is never an option. So we have to learn to coexist. I mean, we love our community. We love uh, the culture. And we don't want to really dismantle it. And that's one reason why I stay and I fight so hard to push for emission reduction because closing those facilities down is not going to happen. The workers want them there. Even though we want clean air, we want clean water, it's just a catch-22. Uh, the federal government wants them there. The state wants them there. And I can't imagine pushing to close those industries down and watching the citizens here lose everything they worked so hard for. Kelly isn't giving up, though. He's in it for the long haul, because it's more than fighting for environmental justice. It's a fight for his community, his family, his home. Even though Kelly left Hollywood to take on the oil and gas industries, he hasn't forgotten about his artistic spirit. He continues to combine his activism and creativity through poetry such as in this poem called My Toxic Reality. I see your smoke rising in the air. Two, three in the morning when you think no one is there. In the still of the night, my child starts to sneeze. In the still of the night, the other starts to wheeze. Your bright, bright torch, it burns all night. To find my way through the house, I don't even need a light. The roar of your flame I've learned to ignore, even though it's combustion vibrate my feet up on the floor. 
I know I live at the back end of town and I should just be quiet and not make a sound. You might even find this a little profound, but me and my neighbors are light and dark shade of brown. I hope our leaders don't conspire to circumvent because these findings I have have a sulfur benzene scent. Excuse me while I cough. <coughs> my throat has a slight tickle. The air I breathe is smells and sometimes very fickle. If you went to take a bath and saw a rash upon your chest, would you just shrug your shoulders and wish yourself the best? Because this money they give is great and this is only flesh. But if you had the right insurance, you could go and take a test. Or oh, I'm scared I'll lose my job if the pollution I contest. But if you died tonight, would your killers confess to the poison they put inside you that laid you down to rest? Would your family have to fight to pay your doctor bills as you lay six foot under upon a grassy hill? Now your job is gone and your company grievance has faded. Your spouse and kids tried to collect from them, but they said your death was not job related. My toxic reality, my toxic reality, my toxic reality. American Diagnosis was brought to you by Just Human Productions. We're funded in part by listeners like you. We're powered and distributed by Simplecast. Today's episode was produced by Zach Dyer, Paige Sutherland, and me. Special thanks to Walker Wooding for his help reporting this story. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. We love providing this and our other podcasts to the public for free, but producing a podcast costs money. We've got to pay our staff. So please make a donation to help us keep this going. Just Human Productions is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So your donations to support our podcasts are tax deductible. Go to americandiagnosis.fm to make a donation. And Just Human Productions is now on Instagram. Check us out at Just Human Productions to learn more about the characters and big ideas we cover on American Diagnosis and our sister podcast, Epidemic. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. Thanks for listening to American Diagnosis.